As I've mentioned before, this podcast is made possible by contributions from listeners. Together, you've helped create more than 400 podcasts over the last six years. I'd like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for that. This show simply wouldn't be possible without you. I've recently been looking at my options because of some financial problems. As a result, I've talked to my friends, family, peers within our community, and also sought out other perspectives about what to do. I heard the same thing over and over again. If your audience continues to find the show valuable, then by the very principles of permaculture, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to earn a living wage. The problem right now is that I'm not. You know my record and thoughts on permaculture. I'm not a shovel-in-the-dirt kind of guy. I'm a scholar and an academic, a storyteller and a broadcaster. My job is to bring the Permaculture Podcast to you. My salary and the budget for the show depends on you. Will you support this work? I'm not looking to generate excess capital, but I can't work on an empty stomach either. If a mere one out of seven of my listeners dedicated a dollar a month or an annual contribution of $20 to the show, I would be able to make a living wage. So I'm going to pause here for a moment and encourage you to visit thepermaculturepodcast.com slash support and invest in this renewable resource that I'm creating for our community. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1714, The Ketogenic Kitchen. My guest today is Patricia Daly. She joins me to talk about her book, The Ketogenic Kitchen, and the potential health benefits of a high-fat, moderate-protein, low-carbohydrate diet. Her work with this diet comes from her own experiences as a cancer patient seeking complementary therapies. Through information emerging in Europe, she found research supporting a ketogenic diet as effective when combined with traditional therapies, in her case, radiation treatments. Undertaking this diet while continuing radiotherapy, she was able to, as you will hear, quite literally see the results. Let's go ahead and get started with Patricia, and I'll join you again afterwards. Can you share with us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write The Ketogenic Kitchen? Yeah, well, that's quite a big a big question, <laughs> uh, because it, there's a long story that leads up to the publication of the book. But in short, I was diagnosed with a very rare form of eye cancer. It's called a choroidal melanoma. So it's basically a tumor that sits inside my eyeball. And I was diagnosed when I was 28. So it was in 2008, so very young. And uh, I didn't get much time to think and ponder. I went straight into treatments and it was all a big shock. It was almost a bit of a, a daze that I was in. And then finally, sort of towards the end of treatment, I started to wake up a little bit and just asked my oncologist, so what is it that I can do for myself and how can I take a little bit of control of the whole situation? Because you feel completely at the mercy of everyone else. And... My oncologist basically said, look, there's not much you can do. You just go home and you rest for a little bit and then you go back to your old life. And for me, that was simply not enough. It wasn't a satisfying answer. <laughs> and um, I knew there must be a little bit more to it. And although I live in Ireland, I'm Swiss. I grew up in Switzerland and in Switzerland, complementary therapies have a long standing and it's a very important part. It's a very important tradition and that's how we grow up. So for me, the first thing was really, okay, 
that's what I turn to. I turn to complementary medicine. And food and nutrition is really, I think, the most tangible thing, especially for cancer patients as well or any uh, chronically ill patient. It's probably the one thing that you have control over, what you eat, what you drink, and probably also what you think to some extent. Um, but apart from, from that, yeah, the, you know, there, there is a lot we can do. And that's what I started to learn. And I literally finished my uh, radiotherapy treatment and had my second surgery. In It was uh, at the end of August. And in September, about three or four weeks later, I started studying nutrition here in, in Dublin, in Ireland. And that just, you know, started this journey. It's, it's an amazing journey really a, a total roller coaster <laughs> uh, I had a relapse very quickly afterwards uh, in 2010 and uh, was really very disappointed felt very let down by my body and uh, although I had made so many changes and I thought I had done my best it simply uh, apparently wasn't enough and uh, you know, after the initial sort of down phase, I went back to the drawing board, and that's how I came across the ketogenic uh, the ketogenic diet then, and uh, started implementing. Not until 2012, when we knew there was issues again with the tumor and all the side effects that I had in the eye, and so I started in May 2012, and the results were visible within weeks. It was amazing, and. You know, so ever since then, touch wood, <laughs> I've been very in very stable remission. And uh, also one of the uh, tumours, my original tumour had spread to the outside of the eye. It was outside the eyeball and that completely disappeared. Um, and the tumour inside the eye is very stable and uh, slowly but surely shrinking. So that led me then to, yeah, just really researching the ketogenic diet and uh, I mean research has just taken off it's amazing actually in those what is it five years or about seven years that I started researching it uh, you know the developments are just uh, mind-blowing it's it's going so fast now and that's why Dominique and I she was actually originally a client of mine she first came to me in 2013 and she said, Patricia, we need to we need to get this information out and we need to put it into a book and especially make it really practical for people who not only want to research it, but also want to start implementing it. And that's what we did. And it took about two, two and a half years to produce the book. It was a, lo a long, <laughs> a long process. So that's why I'm here. And that's why I, you know, I have published a, a book with Domini uh, that is called The Ketogenic Kitchen. And what was it, like, how did you find out about a ketogenic diet that led you to this research in the first place? Was it discussion with someone that you found it, or was it in other research about um, complementary therapies alongside cancer treatment? I found it on the internet, <laughs> as many things these days. I was just researching, Googling, looked into different approaches, called various different institutes, and just nothing really uh, was realistic for me. I had a six-month-old baby when I had a relapse and so many options that were out there, they were just simply not workable for me. It was just either it was financially, it was stretching me too far or it wasn't doable with a baby. And I came across it through a German doctor, researcher and also um, an institute there that had produced a little ebook in in German. And thank goodness, I, I obviously I understood what they were talking about. 
And uh, so I was very fortunate because I don't think there were that many resources in English, especially also recipes and all of that at the time. And so it was, yeah, my own Google research. <laughs> and then obviously taking it further and then diving deep into the whole biochemistry and metabolism and just learning more and more as time went on. And then as you started this diet and really dove into it, you were you could feel the results of that. You felt healthier, felt better, and then also were seeing the results in that diet in your um, long-term health and treatment for the cancer? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about my tumor is that you can actually watch it and you can watch the environment as well. And I think that's probably unique about having a tumor in the eye as uncomfortable it is. It's really not the, the best spot to, to develop a tumor. But the one advantage is you can actually really observe what's going on. And so in, in my case, it was really, you know, within a few weeks, it was mainly the side effects where we saw it first. I had had a lot of side effects. I had edema and uh, I had cataracts. I had massive angiogenesis, which was the main concern. So angiogenesis happens when the tumour is trying to you know, get more nutrients and starts to send out signals so that nearby blood vessels start to provide those nutrients to the tumour. And uh, that was the scariest thing because, you know, a dead tumour wouldn't really necessarily do that. So we knew there was still some activity. And I, I think that was one of the most visible things as well, that those blood vessels really reduced drastically. And, uh, and also my vision came back. It had started to really tunnel in and, you know, I just started to lose vision, which they had told me uh, in 2010, it would be a matter of 12 to 18 months and I would completely lose the vision in, in the right eye where the tumour is. And that had started to happen. But now, I mean, that's, you know, that's it's seven years now and my vision is still really, really good. And um, so that's that is almost like a miracle because the optic nerve, that was the other thing. It was um, nearly dead and it's it's completely looks completely healthy again on, on photographs. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I really hit the spot, you know, it's really and, and I know it, it doesn't work like that for everyone. And we have to be completely realistic about this. And, uh, you know, we, we still are in those preclinical phases where we have to just find out more about who really the ketogenic diet is for and who it's probably not advisable. And, you know, just just really starting to find out uh, a lot more details and really getting a grip on when it suits us and also what type of treatment and, and all of that. When, when can it support a cancer patient and when is it probably not the best idea? And that's what's fascinating for me because as my listeners know and I was kind of catching you up on before we started the interview is that I have celiac disease. So I'm on a medically necessary gluten-free diet. Yeah. And I was diagnosed about seven and a half years ago, shortly after my daughter was born. And so it was adjusting to that was a pretty big kind of jump. But usually then when you make this shift to this diet, it is comorbid with both obesity and diabetes because a lot of the foods that you wind up bringing in to replace, you know, your wheat, barley and rye with are not as healthy for you. And they're higher on the glycemic index. And I found out later that some of the things that I were, was eating, I would have been better off eating straight white table sugar than some of these other starches because they're worse for you. And similar to like a ketogenic diet and some of these other things, a lot of the research then was still emerging. 
And it's fascinating for me in receiving this book and hearing about the health changes that you had with it, that I've now adopted this diet. And for like the first time in years, I'm full. Like that's one of the craziest things for me is that eating a gluten-free and diabetic diet, I was always like ravenously hungry. And now moving to this, um, not only do I find this diet to be much more affordable than trying to do something that's high protein, the high fat is leaving me sated at the end of the day. And already I'm losing some of the weight that I put on from going gluten-free and I'm finding that I just feel better. And it's fascinating to see what a difference this diet makes as well as the research that's emerging that this is healthy, that it's not, that high fat is not bad for you, that, you know, cholesterol is not an issue, eggs are okay. And it kind of goes counter to these things that I spent 30 years growing up with. I know. And that's the frustrating thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm absolutely delighted that you saw such benefits. It's it, it really, I love hearing stories like, like yours where people actually, you know, it, it is all about quality of life, I think, as well. You know, it's not just, of course, you know, for instance, keto, it, it can have amazing health benefits and, you know, for a certain condition. But also, I think in terms of quality of life, I've seen, you know, amazing things and as you say yeah we, we we really have been brainwashed for so long you know <laughs> and uh it is i recently did a, a talk in the school my kids go to and you know people know a little bit what i do but it, it's hard to explain in one sentence what exactly it is that that i do and work on and they asked me just to do a you know general talk and uh, for families and not necessarily for ill people like I usually I deal with very chronically ill people in my job and uh, I was talking about the food pyramid and there was this um, really nice quote from a professor of public health um, down in University of Cork in the south of Ireland and he said you know that the food pyramid is really it's a mix of science but then also the food industry and government influences and people were quite shocked when they heard that they said what well, we thought that was really pure science in the food pyramid and I was oh well not only you know there is so much else influencing the food pyramids and or the healthy eating plate or whatever you know a country adopts to educate their people and there's always you know, there's always other agendas and not just science. It's not pure research-based, you know, facts that flow into a food pyramid. And we, I think we have to, the public should be educated on this. And it's, it's almost like an open secret, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, there is more to the food pyramid. And it might suit maybe sort of about 20 to 30 percent of the population it might suit. I was just listening, actually, when I was at a conference in Tampa on metabolic therapeutics back in February uh, in Florida and uh, Dr. Westman he was he was saying you know the food pyramid maybe suits about 20 to 30 percent of the population but what about the others and I think that's the conversation we have to start and uh, not just okay here's the food pyramid that covers the entire population be it somebody who has cancer or has diabetes or has this condition and it really upsets me sometimes you know when people actually, like you said, you've been trying for 30 years to really do everything to adhere to those guidelines and it just is not working and nobody is there to help. And that really frustrates me. And I like, though, that these conversations are emerging, that for some people, high fat is, is a better place to eat. You know, as you say, the food pyramid is good for some folks. Others are going more towards a high protein. You know, I know a lot of folks who are into like fitness and bodybuilding, so they're really pushing that and 
seeing those results from it and we're finding that these different things work for different people whereas for so long it felt like we were all trying to be fit into the same mold and it's one of the things that i i like about your book and from my own exploration is because i've met with in the united states we have registered dietitians mm-hmm. i don't know if you have the same thing in ireland yeah we do <laughs> okay and so i met with several of them but when i walked in and said celiac disease and family history of diabetes I just watched their face kind of go blank both times. And it's like, well, here's all the research that I have on gluten-free. Here's all the research I have on diabetic. Now we're going to try to figure something out. It's sometimes it is just, I guess they are taught in a certain way as well in, in college. And I mean, I'm not going to knock universities at all. You know, I think they're, they're brilliant places. And of course, they're really needed. But sometimes I do feel, especially in a very fast moving field like nutrition, it's just so hard to keep up and to actually really teach the latest science, but maybe also teach emerging science and I think that's what's lacking as well it's I think sometimes in nutrition we think we can do trials like we can do for drugs we can do the randomized controlled trials and we get the results but it's it's just not that simple and you have a lot more so-called confounding factors than if you just pop a pill but you don't change anything else in your life you know that's fairly easy but if you change a diet it usually comes with so many other things that you start to change as well, because you might start feeling the effects and then you start, you probably sleep better. That has, that has a huge effect. Then because you're less tired, you exercise more. So how do you want to separate all of that out? So I think we just need a whole overhaul of how we actually do research in nutrition. You know, that come, that's I think that's an added issue that we really need to Go out there and look at people, what they do, what works for certain people, what doesn't, and then just really try and find teasing out those factors and not just push it into only the randomized controlled trials. And we don't look at anything else. You know, that's sometimes a sort of, I don't know what to call it, whether it's, you know, it's evidence-based as they call it. But sometimes I also think, yeah, but you ignore all the emerging evidence that, you can't do that with drugs. You can't just say to people, okay, you, you test a little bit of that drug. Of course you can't, but in nutrition, it's just completely different. You have to take a different approach and that needs to change and pressure needs to really come. And it is coming. It's coming from people and it's it's a total, you know, bottom-up process. It's a grassroots movement that people are actually starting to be really fed up, yeah. literally. <laughs> <laughs> As I moved in this direction, because I've been following this diet relatively strictly for about three and a half weeks now, I went and kind of ate my way through my cabinet so that I didn't waste the food that I already had there and kind of ate my way down. And then as my my pantry emptied, I started replacing it with um, food items that are suggested in the book and then some of the recipes and some other things that I've been finding. And in having this conversation with some friends of mine they talk about it not as really a diet, because at least in the American parlance, when we talk about a diet, it's something that you're doing to make like one change. Then you're going to go back to eating the way that you did forever. But really that this is more about changing your eating habits because it's lifelong and it becomes part of your lifestyle. That's where I think some of this research, as you're pointing out, that this we need like long-term longitudinal studies that are following people for a long time to see what changes the diet is making in their lives and be able to track, you know, is your mood improving? So that allows you to do these other things, as you mentioned, like exercise. 
And then maybe if you're or if you're feeling better because the, you're not as sluggish and you're waking up a little bit more energized, maybe you're doing some of those things with your family and friends that then help your spiritual or emotional well-being, and it becomes a more holistic approach. And that's where I feel kind of fortunate because it took me a long time to find a good general practitioner, but my doctor looks at my whole health, but she's in a practice, not in a research setting. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned this because I you hardly ever hear me talk about a ketogenic diet. I always talk about <laughs> a ketogenic lifestyle because, you know, being in ketosis or I prefer to say being fat adapted because there's a, a bit of a difference to being in ketosis and being really genuinely fat adapted because I think ultimately you know, chasing ketones in the blood, which is a byproduct of, you know, being on a ketogenic diet when you start to burn fat. Ketone bodies are an alternative fuel source, you know, instead of mainly glucose, which most people burn when they are on a food pyramid type diet, uh, you start burning more fat and that can be fat from your body, but it can also be fat from your plate, depending on whether you want to lose weight or not. So it's just a completely different uh, way of generating energy. And you can really support this, not just through the diet, but also, as you just said, lifestyle. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a total nerd, uh, but I, I track my sleep, for instance. I've got something called um, an aura ring that I wear, and uh, it tracks when I'm in deep sleep, when I'm in REM sleep, in light sleep. And I mean, the conclusions I've or the things I've learned about myself and how stress impacts my deep sleep. When my deep sleep go, goes down, I know I need to slow down and I really need to work on my life load and, you know, do more easy things and just take a step back. And I've learned so much. And all these things, they actually support nutritional ketosis being fat adapted support your metabolism ultimately and it's all connected and we we actually i think we are so disconnected these days sometimes i think the mind is disconnected from the body and the other way around we actually think we can if we have a problem with our heart it's enough to go to a cardiovascular specialist and he just looks at the heart and we forget that actually there's you know a whole other systems that uh, a system that has an impact on this or you know one perfect example is as well my my oncologist he sometimes he actually he came in and he said so how's the eye and I said yeah the eye is good and you know the rest attached to the eye is doing well as well <laughs> and it was, it was just so typical all he was focused on was the eye and in particular the tumor and I was yeah but you know there's something something else there it's not just about that and and I think that's what we have to learn again it's this whole connection and connecting every single system in the body because they're all if one goes it just has such a huge knock-on effect and that's what I like for instance also about the paradigm of functional medicine that really and that's you know a, as a movement that comes very much from the states and that's how I'm trained as well it's based on functional medicine and just really looking at the root causes and not just the symptoms because you could have a symptom somewhere but it comes from a completely different part of your body and you know I think that's what we really have to learn again especially in in the whole medical system as well. It's one of the things from my background in environmental education and resource management. We look at both problems and issues. A problem is something that you can fix pretty quickly. It's one of the symptoms. 
whereas the issue is the underlying reason for that. And so like just as an environmental example, we have an issue with zebra mussels in the Great Lakes. So to work on that problem of the zebra mussels, we can just dump some poison into the Great Lakes, kill them and move on. But if we really want to fix that long term, the issue is stream degradation. And so if we restore our streams and rivers, that changes that environment and then the zebra mussels can no longer live there. And that's the way that I think about the body as I go through some of these other pieces in my life that we can take a pill for pain, but that just leads to like a lifetime of medication if we don't try to work on the underlying issue of what is causing that pain. That's exactly it. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, sometimes it takes both. Sometimes you need to start with, Mm -hmm. you need to start addressing the symptoms because some people are in so much pain that there's nothing else they can think about. And that's when medication can be really, really important. I think they, it definitely has its place or antibiotics have their place, but not in the extent that we're using and I'm using them now. And uh, I think it's all about being very targeted, being very specific, but it, it should be a stepping stone and it shouldn't be the solution to the problem. That is my view. And we, we need both. We need the conventional, you know, a- approaches also, I think, in, in cancer treatment. We need the conventional side, but we definitely need the complementary um, and integrative side that just looks at the entire system as well. As you just said, with the environment as well, it's exactly the same approach. It makes such a difference when when you as a patient are treated as a whole person as well, that, you know, you can get a name for something, a diagnosis for something which allows you to seek treatment for it. But if you as an individual are supported in all ways, it's easier then to work through these issues and to solve some of these problems when you have the support of your doctor, of your specialists, of your family and have that space to explore because it really removes a lot of that stress and allows you to be more active and proactive in your life. Yeah, and there are actually studies that show, you know, if a, if a patient is very proactive and is actually interested in seeing the scans and collecting all the, say, the, the blood test results or whatever else results and actually keeps a file with everything, that patient empowerment actually has an impact on outcome on how that patient is doing. And, I mean, it's common sense, but it is backed by, by studies as well. And I think people who are trying to, you know, not necessarily be in the driver's seat all the time, but at least in one of the front seats and not somewhere locked in the booth, that this makes a big difference. In the ketogenic kitchen, you and Dominique have laid out like two different ways to approach eating this way, where one is like a reduced carb and the other is like a severely limited carb. But in both cases, I find that what you've written about and delivered in this book is much different from the other keto recipes and books that I found because you include a lot more plants than a lot of recipes that I've encountered because it seems like a lot of it's, you know, bacon and eggs and then here's how you can make your coconut oil fat bombs for when you're in the middle of it and here's, you know, your jerky snacks and things like that. It seems like it's a lot of meat and fat, but both of you have kind of created this more well-rounded keto diet. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about those two forms, the reduced and then the very limited carb, and also how you develop these more broad ranging recipes. The basic idea is that we hardly ever recommend diving into, you know, a keto diet. Say somebody has, you know, sort of the average of 250 to 300 grams of uh, carbs a day, which is, you know, pretty common. 
they add up fairly quickly if you have uh, oatmeal for breakfast and then a sandwich for lunch and pasta for dinner and some very carby snacks as well it, it does add up really quickly to go from that to you know the 12 grams or 20 grams uh, of net carbs a day which really is not a lot it would be kind of a shock to the system and uh, I don't consider that a very good idea so we sort of discussed okay how can we really ease people into that and I've always been a fan of just reducing over at least two weeks or just even do a week of organizing and just for instance starting by cutting out grains and then really starting to go down in the carbs slowly so that the body has um, a chance to adapt. Now there's also people who go into it with fasting which is the most extreme form but in my view it comes with too many side effects and I don't like it too much. Uh, so that's how we came up with basically going to having a part low carb where, you know, if people stick to that, it's not meal plans, it's just recipes. And if they stick to that, they're probably around, you know, anything between 50 to 120 grams of uh, net carbs a day. And it's pretty doable. It's not nowhere near as extreme as a ketogenic diet, which is severely carbohydrate restricted. And it's also what Domini does most of the time. I mean, she is lower sometimes, but also because of her job, she is a chef and she sometimes can't avoid testing foods or trying new things that have carbs. So for her, it's just, it would be very, very hard to be very strict ketogenic. And she's doing so well as it is. So for her, you know, simple carb reduction, going low carb, but not necessarily going that low that she's in ketosis all the time suits her really well. Whereas in my case, because we, we do have the most evidence for keto for cancer for brain tumors and because the eye is an extension of the brain and there are so many metabolic quirks in the eye that it makes a lot of sense to consider the ketogenic diet. For me, that has been what, what worked really well at the beginning. Now I do have some more carbs than the 12 grams that we work towards in uh, my part of the book but it's it's definitely not sort of you know 70 80 100 a day that would be a bit you know I wouldn't quite feel that well on that so my part uh, the ketogenic part goes uh, it's a meal plan a one month plan that people can start at about 50 grams of net carbs and then work their way within two weeks to the 12 grams and then stay on the 12 grams for another two weeks. And then what happens afterwards is obviously very much dependent on the individual. So that was the idea. I'm all, or both Dominique and I, we are all on for, you know, giving people options. Because for some people, you know, a ketogenic diet is simply, it's not realistic. And they probably will never stick to it and then just throw the towel in and go back to whatever. <laughs> So that's what we want to avoid and uh, say if they find joy, if they get some results on low carb. And some people really get amazing results, you know, cancer patients as well. They don't have to go full hog keto. It really depends. And uh, that's why we came up with that. And then the whole, you know, the plant um, ideas, I guess we we both do like our vegetables and we thrive on them. I know there are people, especially in the keto uh, world, there are people who do zero carb and they literally only predominantly live on animal foods. And it just simply for now, in, in my opinion, or for my own well-being, it, it doesn't work. If it works for somebody, that's great. But I do prefer for a number of reasons to include as many plants as I can. 
and you know also fats that come from plants like olive oil avocado oil is great macadamia you know there's so many options and I think it's the more variety you have as well and the more variety you have in terms of different plants I do feel it's what research also starts to come up with it's it's really a good idea for the microbiome so our gut flora so that's some of the reasons why uh, we did things a little bit differently and because we both like cooking and experimenting and being creative as well in the kitchen and I will say that I've been doing the reduced carb. I'm somewhere between 50 and 100 grams of carbs a day so that I can still have, you know, an evening dish of ice cream with my children or if I go out with my buddies and get a, an order of fries to go with a sandwich or something. But I'm I'm planning the rest of my day around when I might have those higher carb loads. And I'm just finding, though, that it's it's fascinating for me because after having spent seven years hungry, but now that I've been following this and feel sated most of the time, I'm able to watch the places where I was just eating automatically and when I would just reach for something because that's what I was doing. And it's really helped me become much more aware and much more conscious of what it is that I'm eating while not feeling incredibly restricted. There's still so much available in what you and Domini laid out that it really amazed me compared to the research that I had gone through even just a couple months ago into a keto diet and the re the recipes and other things that I was finding. And it's what really continues to draw me back to your work is because I can still really eat anything that I want. I just have to watch here and there. And as I'm not craving in the same way and being much more aware of it, that I can continue to eat healthy even by having these other foods included. It's just, it's fascinating and amazing to me. And I'm still kind of yeah, it's a revelation, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I think that's, you know, that is ultimately what we want as well. We want, we want to empower people. And at some point, you probably will come up with your own recipes. And I think that would be the ideal. I mean, people who, you know, sometimes they really start from scratch. They don't know anything about food or cooking. And they, you know, get so much joy and they connect a lot more. Again, it's about connection probably with food. And I think that's really the, the beautiful thing about it as well. And uh, having having all those options and not feeling restricted. And, you know, even people ask me, so how do you eat out? Can you, can you eat out at all? And I would say, of course. I mean, it's as simple as, you know, asking them to please not add any sugar to anything, which thank goodness in, in Ireland is not very common. But I know in the States, they sometimes add sugar to steaks or, you know, batters or a lot, a lot of them are very sugary. So I just ask them to please not put anything and then I just, instead of potatoes, I say, can I have one of your side dishes? If I have to, I pay extra. Can I have some broccoli or green beans or something else that they have on their side dish menu and they can just swap it? And it's all about, you know, just having the knowledge to do that in restaurants as well. And I think it's it's perfectly doable for most people and you don't kill your social life. And I think that's the important thing. And as you say as well, with a family, I mean, both Dominie and I, we cook for a whole family. There's six people in our household. And so, yeah, it, it has to. I can't cook two different dishes every day. That's just not going to happen. So it has to be doable. And being someone who's lived gluten-free for so long and still like to go out to different restaurants and try new things, I find that as long as you ask and let people know that, you know, this is a diet that you're on for medical reasons. And I also tend to order last so everybody else can get their order in and then I can kind of take my server's time and monopolize them for a few minutes. That as long as you're nice and kind about it and, you know, not get upset or demanding that I've had all kinds of places be very accommodating to me. You know, I still get to go out and enjoy those opportunities. And, 
you know, it's not as difficult as it can seem when you first start doing this, that as you learn to navigate it, it gets easier and easier. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, at the beginning, it can be totally overwhelming. And that's why actually last year I created this ebook where it's all photographs. And uh, because people kept asking me, so so what does it look like if I want to eat uh, five grams net carbs in broccoli, for instance? What does that look like? And I was, that's actually a really, you know, it's, it's a good point. So I started to take photographs of food where I just always had the same plate. And then I, I put a certain amount of, say, broccoli or carrots or, you know, whatever, whatever else you can think of. And this is what it looks like if you eat one gram of net carb. So people can actually visualize it. And I did the same then for protein. What does it look like if you want to eat 10 grams of protein and you have a salmon in front of you? And a lot of people said that that really helped them then to eat out and to actually visualize it. And they have a rough idea of how much they can eat and they can do a rough calculation then in their head if they have to, because there's people who have epilepsy and they have to actually measure absolutely everything. And, you know, if, if you do do the ketogenic diet for medical reasons, you, you have to be thorough and careful. And so I'm all on for just creating as many really helpful tools for people to make it so much easier to implement and to to follow through and make it sustainable. There was a while on my diet as I was navigating things, I wound up eating a lot of packaged foods just because the nutritional label was there and I had a fairly good idea of what my macronutrients were that I was getting from them so that I could figure these kinds of things out. And then as I got comfortable with that, being able to step back then and go, okay, now that I feel comfortable, because for a long time it was just hard to eat and to do it well. And so because of those struggles, moved to packaged foods, got that organized, and then I was able to step further and further away from that as I got to understand what portion sizes were. You know, as you say, what does 10 grams of protein look like? What is five grams of net carbs, being able to read my food labels and having like a calorie counter so I can say, okay, I've got a medium apple in front of me. What does this look like? Um, What is the impact on my diet? And then after a while, it just kind of becomes natural. Yeah, that's the thing. And that's what people sometimes can't believe when when they start. You know, I'll never, ever be able to do this. And I don't want to walk around with weighing scales for the rest of my life to weigh food, yeah. you know. <laughs> and yeah, my heart really, my heart goes out. And uh, when when I hear stories like like these, but you know, I, I think packaged foods they they do have their place at the beginning. Definitely, mm-hmm. I, I consider them like yeah. crutches. You know, you sort of use them for a little while, and uh, till you get the hang of it, and you learn as you go, and then hopefully you can just ditch them at some point. And that's exactly what I did as I ate through my pantry. Now all that stuff's out of there and I just go to my local grocery store two or three times a week and I can get the things that I need for the next two or three days um, and be able to cook fresh, put things in the in the fridge and, and go. Exactly, yeah. With all of this and the research that you've done over the years, I'm wondering what research or emerging information excites you about a ketogenic diet and the impacts that it can have on someone's life, their health, cancer, and all of that. Yeah, I mean, because of my my own story and my special area of interest, obviously in cancer, it is. I think it is one of those areas that has a lot of potential, but it's obviously also probably the most controversial area. And uh, I have, you know, witnessed and experienced and felt that since we published the book. You know, the the backlash has 
been quite big and uh, it was actually bigger than expected. And the, the exact reason why this is like this, I, I'm not sure, to be honest. And there's, I'm sure there's lots of different reasons why there is a certain resistance to changing how we view cancer and changing how we approach cancer treatment. And you know what excites me most, I think, is the potential of the ketogenic diet to make conventional treatments more effective, which might allow for reduced dosages and also generally just reducing side effects. And I see that time and time again. And you, we do have some preliminary, again, you know, papers and preclinical studies that show how, you know, being in ketosis can have a really can lead to a much better response and uh, the clinical trials are underway now which is absolutely fabulous in in humans so human clinical trials are underway which is I think compared to any other dietary approach we don't have that in cancer or you know in a lot of chronic diseases so this is what really excites me just to wait for those results and uh, there are so many studies going on so I always remind myself okay if there was absolutely nothing behind this and if it was quackery like some people actually say uh, this is all quackery and this whole sugar feeds cancer is a total oversimplification yes I agree it is an oversimplification And it's not just about glucose at all. There's a lot more to it. And uh, it's not just about what cancer cells feed on. But uh, we know that the ketogenic diet has also huge effects on, as I said earlier, angiogenesis, which is one of the hallmarks of cancer. A cancer um, or a tumor cannot grow unless there are blood vessels feeding it. And also, you know, epigenetic, so genetic expression, We also have uh, good evidence into how the different growth pathways, for instance, insulin, insulin-like growth factor and other growth factors, how they're actually, you know, positively impacted by a ketogenic diet. I mean, positively for for the patient. And, you know, it, it is an oversimplification if you say sugar feeds cancer, but there is a lot more to the ketogenic diet and, you know, unveiling and discovering all this is yeah it's it's very exciting I think definitely and um, it it will lead we will know a lot more in the next five to ten years but at the moment we're just sort of to some extent in limbo but we're in limbo as it is when it comes to cancer nutrition we just have very very scarce evidence into any approach when it comes to what cancer patients should should eat it's such a minefield And I'm certainly excited for myself to see the personal impact and then also to be able to follow up with my general practitioner and to have my annual physicals and things and see, you know, how does this impact all of my numbers, in particular my A1C because of my family history and having had an elevated A1C. Yeah, this is just, it's fascinating all the ways that diet and nutrition can really impact us. But it's, you know, having, as we said earlier, having to let go of so much of what we've learned before to find what works for us. Definitely. And that's what it's all about, ultimately. And and also, you know, the system, I think the whole food industry, governments, that they, they do support this as well and not push obstacles in the way. <laughs> that's what, you know, that's what's really important both in the research, but also in the subsidies that we have for things like corn and sugar and these other base foods that are often used in what we find in the packaging in our grocery store. Yeah, and that's, you know, it all comes, for me, you know, it would be, if if a lot more people ate like this, it would have such huge implications, you know, not just on health, but also health of the planet, you know, not just human health, but health of the planet. And I think for me, it's, you know, it's, 
I think we need to look at human beings as a holistic entity, but also, uh, you know, just the, I'm very passionate about, you know, planet and keeping environmental issues as well and keeping the, the planet you know, livable because the way we're going at the moment, you know, we don't need to talk about food fairly soon, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, it, it's all, it comes back to connection and really taking responsibility for what you do and how this has implications, not just for ourselves, but as a whole. Yeah. I really appreciate the conversation that we've had today to explore these ideas further. And personally, like I, from the bottom of my heart, thank you and Dominique for writing this book because of the impact that it's had on my life so far, because it really answered a question that I've been having a problem with for so many years. And it's just, it's amazing already. As I say, the, the changes that I've seen for myself, my health, my well-being, and the way that I'm eating. I'm delighted to hear this. Oh, great, Scott. Yeah, no, really. Just be very happy. <laughs> and with that said, as I'd like to end every interview, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think we, we really covered a lot of ground here, and I hope uh, listeners in, enjoyed, you know, getting the information. Hopefully they, they can take a few steps. And yeah, I think, you know, really starting with just reflection as well, you know, really looking at, okay, what am I eating and how am I feeling? And sometimes to my, my clients as well, they, they don't often make the connection between food and mood. And just to really, um, I think because it's been sort of a bit of a thread throughout our, our conversation to individualize and to find out what's good for you. And that's what I would really like to encourage people and to tune in and then go out and research if you find something interesting or if you've heard something that you really like that resonates with you really read up about it and then take you know get support and uh you know find what works for you i think that's really important thank you for that patricia and thank you for joining me today yeah thank you so much for inviting me it was great to talk to you and that was patricia daly find out more about her and her work at patriciadaily.com and you can find the ketogenic kitchen at chelseagreen.com and of course you'll find links to both in the show notes I don't normally dive into diet or lifestyle decisions, but as you heard, a ketogenic diet has had a huge impact on my own personal health, and I wanted to share that with you. As Patricia talked about, not all the dietary information that we have available is a one-size-fits-all. We already know this from diets that exist already, such as a diabetic diet, a gluten-free diet, and other ones that have been developed for medical needs. And because of the impact that a ketogenic diet has had for me, I consider it to be a valuable resource for someone who faces similar struggles either with cancer or such as my own, celiac disease or diabetes. But with that, which I feel Patricia was rather explicit about, this is to complement the other work that we're doing with our doctors and specialists. That diet alone is not a panacea for what ails us. As much as, you know, in my own case, a diet has a huge impact on my symptoms. A diet alone doesn't cure the underlying conditions in many cases. And when it comes to something as pernicious as cancer, which is a name that we lump so many different types under, each one has their own way of being impacted through any of the therapies available, including something as complementary as a ketogenic diet. And I was interested in cancer in particular a little bit more, so I reached out to a friend of mine who is researching cancer medication at a doctoral level about what she knows regarding diet and its impacts on cancer. 
And though she couldn't speak to a ketogenic diet in the same way as how it helped Patricia, my friend did say that there is evidence that a high-fat diet is easier to hold down when undergoing cancer treatment. So if this is something that you're experiencing or know someone who's going through, it could be worth bringing up to a doctor or oncologist who's working with you on managing and treating this disease or others in your life. But please make sure that you do continue those conversations with your regular practitioner and look at all of the treatments, therapies, and complementary medicines that are available to you for whatever you face in life. With that, if you're currently eating a ketogenic diet or you're interested in it, I'd love to hear from you, know what your experiences have been. If there's another diet that you follow that's having a healthful impact in your life, let me know. Get in touch. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Or if you'd like to drop something in the post, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. For those listeners who are Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast, I am giving away my copy of The Ketogenic Kitchen to a listener. You'll find a link to that giveaway in the show notes for this episode at thepermaculturepodcast.com. From here, the next episode is a question and answer session from last year's Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in and eating a full, healthy diet that takes care of Earth, yourself, and each other.